This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now, it's time to decentralize. Hello and welcome. You've landed in the DC, TGIF DCT uh, in the Decentralized Trials Club. Yeah, let me try that again. I'm fumbling all over myself here today as I ditch my headset. Hello and welcome. You've landed in TGIF DCT, our Decentralized Trials Club here on Clubhouse, or maybe you've landed on the Decentralized Podcast on your favorite podcast platform, wherever you are connecting and listening, welcome. Remember, if you're here with us live on Fridays noon Eastern time, this is a great opportunity for you to participate in our conversations, to be able to come off of mute in the second half of the hour and bring your questions, or even just to jump in on the conversation in the chat that's live. But 12 on Fridays, Eastern time doesn't work for everybody every week, which is why we're thrilled to be able to share the content through the Decentralized Podcast, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to go to grab your content. Wherever you may be listening, if you click that like, subscribe, follow, whatever that option is, at least that way you'll get notified if we drop any additional content in between these weekly gatherings each week. Our topics that we discuss come from you, the folks in our community and our audience. And so keep those topics coming. Maybe there's an idea. Maybe there's something cool you saw. Maybe you'd like to jump on and be a guest with us one week. Just drop a message to myself, to Jane Miles, Amir Kalali. Find us on Twitter slash X, on LinkedIn, maybe even threads, or just send an email to secretariat at dtra.org. One other housekeeping note that I often will forget, uh, if you're here with us live, poke around in the room and see who else is joining here today. Um, give those folks a follow on LinkedIn. They may be great partners and allies. They're sharing your interest in today's topic. And so maybe they uh, could be a part of a solution for your next challenge um, and keep this community going and growing. All right, Jane, I am sensing we have a, uh, a Canadian theme happening today. Uh, what are we going to be talking about today? All right. So today we have the privilege of speaking with two of the leaders who've been working to build a framework for clinical trials for oncology patients in Canada, and they'll talk a lot about it. But what excites me is this is, from what I can tell, a blend of what already exists in the infrastructure in Canada using new ways to open access for patients who wouldn't typically get to participate. 
So that's a really big deal in a place like Canada, which has a not huge population, highly dispersed, and frankly, it's not always easy to get access to healthcare, let alone a trial. So that's why I thought this was super interesting. And I had the pleasure of meeting Stephen about 18 months ago, but then the work came back up again to my attention in late November and a lot of progress had been made. So welcome Stephen and Bianca. We're super thrilled that you're here today because what you're doing probably applies all over the world. You're just coming at it from a Canadian perspective. It it really is great to have you both here. Uh, Stephen, maybe we can um, start with you. If you don't mind introducing yourself and maybe share a little bit on just who is the Canadian Cancer Clinical Trials Network. Thanks, Craig. Uh, thanks, Jane. Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you happen to be, and happy Friday. Um, sure. Uh, I'm Steve Selquist. I am the executive director of 3CTN, or the Canadian, otherwise known as the Canadian Cancer Clinical Trials Network. Uh, we were formed in around 2014 to uh, and established as a network of Canadian Cancer Center sites, uh, both pediatric and adult sites, uh, formed to address what at the time was and what has been since uh, a challenge, an open challenge, an acknowledged challenge in uh, supporting the conduct preferentially of academic cancer clinical trials. But our site network also recognizes that our initiatives, our efforts um, are achieved through collaboration and what we do benefits all trials, whether they're industry supported or sponsored or academic sponsored. We have a few um, central themes or pillars to our strategy um, and have maintained those throughout our time. Um, they include ensuring uh, and embedding patient engagement in all aspects of the clinical trials continuum, uh, specifically conduct at the sites is our, our specific focus, uh, as well as the development of academic, in the development of academic trials and making sure the trial questions are most relevant uh, and outcomes are relevant for, to patients as well as the scientific endpoints. And then tying more into our talk today, um, we maintain a, a Canadian portfolio of multi-center Canadian-led or Canadian-involved academic cancer clinical trials at the sites uh, being conducted across all sites, rather, in our network. We have about 60 uh, adult and pediatric sites currently uh, in most of the Canadian provinces represented within our network. Um, and what we do within our operating framework is have a, a communications platform and a performance reporting platform where we receive from all centers, uh, according to defined KPIs, uh, around trial performance and accrual, their uh, performance on the trials in the portfolio. So they submit their data on a quarterly basis to us so we can get a, a near to real time a status on all of those trials in the portfolio, how they're doing, who's doing them, and uh, importantly, where you can find those trial sites in Canada uh, for clinicians, patients. Uh, we also support the collaborative conduct of those trials and, and, uh, and primarily to ensure that there's equitable, equitable access. We recognize that's essential, that's DCT's frameworks and approaches. Uh, are a critical way to bring and improve 
that case or the cause of equitable access to trials. So we set about um, developing that craft framework, and thanks, Craig, for dropping that in the chat, the reference to the publication that was born out of that um, multi-stakeholder collaboration. Thanks, Stephen. Um, it's great to have you here. I'm really looking forward into to digging in together around this craft framework and how uh, how the team developed that. Um, but we also have a colleague uh, here with you, and I'd love to let folks hear the voice of Bianca Corsell. Bianca, if you don't mind coming off mute, introduce yourself for folks uh, to know your voice and your work. Hi, uh, my name is Bianca Corsell. Um, I've been a um, nurse for the past 13 years. Um, I've worked with pediatric oncology patients um, for many, many years and decided to actually move to research um, four years ago. Um, so now I'm a research um, nurse at St. Justin Hospital in Montreal. And um, I've been really loving uh, this new position um, because I feel like I can make a difference um, in the long run for those patients and really like have an impact on their future and their outcomes. Um, and when we were talking about uh, decentralized clinical trial, it really, really spoke to me um, to be able to give access to as many patients as possible um, in Canada to get those opportunities and have a better outcome. Um, so yes, that's that's about it for for my experience and background in in research. Thanks so much, Bianca. It's uh, it's always great to hear these examples from different parts of uh, the world. Um, so many different interesting challenges as it relates to access issues that um, may be unique to some geographies and shared across others. Stephen, I wonder if you can just share a bit on the problem that you were looking to solve when you brought a group together around creating this framework and what was the process like of developing a DCT framework for a network like this? Was there prior art that you were referencing or um, other examples that kind of helped you to get this off the ground? Great question, Craig. Um, yeah, as Jane mentioned in her introduction very well uh, and articulated very well was the situation here in this country is defined by a large landmass area, uh, the largest in the world, and a, and a population that is about one-tenth of the United States, about 38 million people or so uh, in, in that area. Most of our population do reside in urban or suburban centers, but for about 30, uh, 30 plus or minus percent of, of Canadians, uh, the trip to a, the nearest cancer center can be a very long one. Uh, and that obviously impacts the capacity for trial conduct, um, if you're looking at it from uh, the site feasibility, but importantly and most importantly, access to interventions offered through trials for patients can be uh, overwhelming and a non-starter uh, from a distance. So with that, and with common recognition that across the country that uh, relatively few sites are given the opportunity to open uh, sponsored trials um, uh, unless they can demonstrate that feasibility, have enough patients in their, trial, uh, in their catchment area, um, and to enable uh, centers that have trial capacity and research professional uh, 
professionals on site to be able to offer trials uh, to patients across the country more equitably, there was a need to develop a, a, a framework or a, an approach that would allow uh, really a distributed um, and leveraging the, the network that we have, a way to offer trials in a distri more distributed way. And so we got together, uh, brought stakeholders from uh, ethics uh, groups, cancer research, ethics, uh, provincially in each of the Canadian provinces, um, uh, institutional ethics boards, researcher, clinician investigators, patient partners, uh, including uh, folks from remote centers and communities um, in the country um, uh, and, and from centers across the country, uh, clinical trialist sponsors, both academic and uh, industry sponsors, uh, as well as uh, regulatory folks from Health Canada um, to help inform what the, a Canadian approach, uniquely Canadian approach and a feasible approach could be here. Um, after an extensive environmental scan, we landed on uh, a model, uh, a couple of models. One was a pediatric, a, a couple of pediatric models that already existed in Canada. Uh, the Pediatric Oncology Group in the province of Ontario uh, had a model, have a model that's been in place for uh, many, many years now, as well as AFON in Atlantic Canada. Um, we looked at a, a model that was born out of Australia um, in 2016, I believe, 2017, uh, the Australasian Teletrials Model, or a the ATM, and we can drop a link to that publication. That became central, that last example became central in terms of the view of the stakeholders at a working group we had in 2019, that, that um, because it, it, it proposed what is a trial cluster approach, or hybrid DCT approach, wherein a cancer center um, site or a primary, primary investigator site that has that trial open uh, works with secondary sites or satellite sites. Um, the definition of that satellite site is all important though. They are satellites to the primary site in a, a trial cluster style uh, uh, organization. Uh, and those satellites can be different institutions or have different trial capacity uh, potential. They can be other cancer centers with full scope of, uh, uh, full potential rather, to run all uh, aspects of a trial and all activities, um, pharmacy and clinical trial conduct, um, clinical conduct and interventions, drug delivery, as well as community centers that have varying degrees of, of capacity, of course, based on their size and research experience to do that. And that model is an agile model and a risk-based model that looks first at the trial and a review to determine where and how that trial can be conducted with satellite, a satellite site or, or multiple satellite sites in a cluster. Uh, and we have and also developed that uh, a series of tools, importantly, that recognize that principal investigator site bears the responsibility and the workload and the decisions and, and the risk uh, associated with organizing a trial cluster. So in a nutshell, that's really translated into the development of the craft framework in a Canadianized, what is a Canadianized version of the Australasian teletrials model. 
One question I know will be on the minds of many, especially following the FDA's draft guidance uh, from last year, under some circumstances, are these satellite sites and under other circumstances, do they have to be sites at all? Can they focus on routine care activities supporting that other uh, dedicated research site, um, but not have to be considered a site uh, at all in the current framework? Yeah, it's a it's it's an excellent point, and it's something that we've uh, looked at, and we're seeing in in implementation or application of the model. We recognized that a satellite in this definition is not a standalone site. So one fundamental point of understanding is they they don't uh, hold the trial file. They're not responsible for data management, CRF completion. They are satellites to the primary site. There is in the eyes of the uh, the sponsor, there is one still one site that is the initial or the primary site at the hub of this trial cluster model. So whether it's trial-related uh, uh, interventions or standard of care, that's a, a separate decision that's made in terms of what, and we've seen questions arise around trial reviews, uh, review of specific trials rather, uh, about whether uh, a satellite can do both or whether it is supporting the conduct of the study as a satellite in standard of care or follow-up for the patient. Uh, at a remote location. So they're, they're really, if we're looking at craft and the conduct of the site and, and the satellite, it would be a satellite conducting all aspects in a randomized trial, aspects of, of all arms of the randomized trial, if that makes sense. I think it does. I'm going to dive into the rabbit hole just a bit. So would you... Hmm. Are there situations where members of your satellite sites do not require specific protocol training? And how do you make that determination? Yeah, so so training is a good example, Jane, of, of, of that risk-based decision. So in what is in the craft paper and what, what is being put into practice in the implementation, not all of the clinical team at the satellites are expected to be trained on aspects of research if they are performing standard of care, for example, in the, even in the context of the trial. That's a, a bit of a provocative approach for some, but the sub-investigator, let's say, or the investigator responsible for the satellite activities and or any research coordinators, professionals, leads at a satellite would certainly have their full scope of research training and competencies in order to support the activity at the site. But that doesn't necessarily extend uh, to the clinical front face or front line. Got it. So they may show up on a delegation of authority log, but they may not have to have a full protocol training record. Right. That would be defined in that delegation and in this and what we've developed on our 3CTN website, and we can share the link to that uh, in the tools uh, developed was a satellite site supervision uh, plan where you define the extent of um, what that satellite site 
conducts and who is responsible for it. And that there's a delegation log as well that's a companion to that resource, and you define it all there. That's not to say you don't have study-specific orientation and training for the satellite, which is over and above any core training. I, I, yeah, that, that makes sense to me. And I'm really interested, if we can stick here for just a moment, how those conversations went with your stakeholders, including ethics and regulators, as you went about figuring out this risk framework and how to make decisions around to what degree can a practicing physician become part of a satellite site? <laughs> it's a great question. It's an ongoing conversation, I'll say, and there are different interpretations. Uh, understandably, you can expect, as you could expect, uh, across uh, the network from from where we sit. What we tried to do um, as well was define that the terms of that relationship somewhat. Uh, and clarify and give a starting point for organizing uh, trial clusters uh, by creating a master trial agreement or study agreement, research agreement um, template, in terms of which really um, were agreed to and, and developed by a, a working group um, from this, this organized uh, stakeholder group. Uh, where sites can use that and establish what is a, a basis of agreement with any satellites that they work with. Um, and then there's a master, uh, or sorry, a uh, scope of work or statement of work a, addendum that's created where the details for a specific trial, rather, where the, the specifics of what is delegated for that trial in particular. Um, and the requirements are laid out more more thoroughly. So that one MSA or MRA uh, serves for the the duration of the relationship with those, between those centers. There is just one uh, one developed up front, and then uh, it's a facilitated uh, agreement process from there on in. And you've got the details of that each specific study laid out in that statement of work. I hope that makes sense. And we have the templates for that on our website as well. Yeah, thank you for that. And I do want to call that out. A lot of these tools and the outcome of your work are publicly available to anyone who goes to find it on your website. So thank you for sharing that, because I think a lot of countries, organizations, frankly, even sponsors are trying to figure out how would we structure an MSA and then describe how these relationships work. So thank you for sharing. And, uh, awesome. I think that was a requirement. I, I want to say that's the, that's really born out of the nature of, of how our network functions. We really aim to support and serve all of our centers and uh, extend what our learnings have been outside of the cancer oncology space. So, so thank you for that. As folks have noted, we do have the uh, the link to the network and the craft framework that we're describing here. That link is in the chat and at the pinned top of your page here in Clubhouse. But we'll also make sure that's added to the show notes for those of you joining us later via podcast. Bianca, I'd love to hear some of your experiences using the framework and kind of bringing this to life. Um, how has that proceeded from where you're sitting um, in, 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 in incorporating this framework in your studies? And has anything surprised you along the way with those implementations? 
Yes, so um, my experience was with adult and young adult populations. So it, it can be a little bit different from maybe other septic plate that we hear about. Um, so we had an adult patient that we had to um, enroll in a pediatric clinical trial. But as a pediatric hospital, we cannot really treat um, an adult patient. So we had to put something in place. And uh, this is where um, I was um, introduced to the, the craft framework um, to be able to guide me a little bit to like, where do we start this process? Because uh, it can be a little bit overwhelming at the beginning just to know like, who do I contact? Where do I start? And, and the, the craft framework was really, really helpful. Um, it, it really helps you to know like who are the, the stakeholders that I need to include when I'm building um, a decentralized clinical trial. And then the tools that were put in place really helped us um, define roles for everybody because when you start something new like the decentralized clinical trial, um, nobody really knows like what uh, their roles is going to be. And um, just to make sure there's no like misunderstanding and, and um, overlapping of work, um, the craft framework really helped us um, um, guide everybody that was involved in creating uh, the satellite site. And so like, like Stephen mentioned it, we had um, a delegation log um, that was really helpful um, to make sure that the people that would be uh, working on the clinical trial at the satellite site would be on this delegation log and they will have uh, activities um, that they, were, they would be able to do and make sure that everyone knew exactly what they needed to do and the training that they would have, have to do as well. And, and then we, we also um, used the supervision plan and I think this is the best tool that, that we, could, um, we could have. So I'm really grateful that that was implemented because it's a tool where the primary site and the satellite site really share um, who's going to be doing what during um, when opening the satellite site, during also the, the patient's treatment and when we need to close the, the study. And it was so helpful for everybody from the primary site and the satellite site to know like, so this task, it's the primary site that will take this on. And then, um, for example, planning all the exams and, and, and sending all the results to the primary site, then this is gonna be the job of the satellite site. So the tools were really helpful to help everyone know what they were supposed to do. Um, so yeah, I've used them for when I, I built like multiple satellite sites and I've used them and it's, it's working really well. It, uh, it, it, in addition, if I can add, Craig, um, what Bianca's referencing too, as intended, the, the supervision plan um, goes a step further and can be used by the investigator to uh, create a risk base monitoring or review or training plan uh, for, based on the level of experience that's identified uh, from that supervision tool. And we have a satellite site um, uh, capabilities uh, checklist, essentially, that's a component or a, another resource that, that, that informs that supervision plan.
Yes, you're upset. You're absolutely right. And it, it's great that you mentioned that, Stephen, because I think building satellite site, it doesn't have to be um, just, you know, like a one, one type of satellite site. Like you mentioned, I think it depends really on the capacity of the satellite site that you're working with and assessing um, their capability and their expertise um, really helped uh, building satellite site that will be, you know, working well, if that makes sense. <laughs> Fabulous. This is a, uh, a great time in the uh, conversation to pause for a minute, remind folks that uh, your, your microphone is now available to you. So if folks in the audience have questions or comments that they'd like to bring into this conversation, experiences in similar models, or questions about how to adapt this model for their therapeutic area, their geography. Um, this is a great time to take advantage of the hand-raising icon in the lower right of your screen. Uh, feel free to uh, bring your questions up here and share your experiences on today's topic. Um, you know, as, as I'm, I'm hearing this and some of the uh, examples, Stephen, I'm wondering, were there any surprises as you're starting to see teams adopt the framework? Um, anything that's jumping out as something that didn't work quite as expected or other areas that maybe had an outcome you didn't anticipate? Amazing question. That was actually a great segue. It's almost like we planned it um, for me to talk a little bit about a proof of concept uh, demonstration that was part of the development of Craft, Craig. Um, the network identified and our, our funders identified an opportunity um, given that it was derived from an existing model that was underway in Australia in a country, incidentally, with similar population distribution issues rather than most of their country, our country, uh, being lying along the, with a, a tight band uh, close to the U.S. border, majority of that uh, Australia's population ring the uh, the coastline of that country and uh, leaving large areas of rural uh, rural uh, communities um, and remote communities. So, so we wanted because it was an existing model and we had some confidence in its feasibility. We wanted though to demonstrate a proof of concept that, that would answer some of those questions that, that you've raised and ensure and both demonstrate its, its feasibility, but, but address some of those questions. So we undertook and initiated at and supported three initial centers to participate in a proof of concept. They were scattered across uh, three provinces, one in Ontario, uh, Northern Ontario, one in Northern British Columbia on the West Coast, and one on the Far East Coast in uh, St. John's, Newfoundland each with two satellites, remote satellite sites of differing, differing structures to uh, what we've been talking about, satellites that were uh, regional hospitals or uh, remote community health centers. Um, and uh, and uh, the trials, uh, they, they each had a, a unique trial, imaging and uh, drug trials, and they were uh, two academic trials on the 3CTM portfolio and one pharma-sponsored uh, drug trials. So we had a nice mix to be able to try to get at some commonalities, uh, let's say in terms of observations, uh, demonstrate feasibility across different trial types and, and in different regions. Uh, so some of the lessons learned, uh, I mean, overall, it's been very positive. Um, and every site I should start off maybe by saying has uh, indicated, we've just wrapped up the, the proof of concept study period, the trials, two of the three trials are still ongoing. 
Um, but the recommendations that have come out of the model, um, I can share some of them with you. They are really, first of all, to select the right trial, at least to, especially to start rather, look at trial complexity, look at what's feasible, start somewhere and start somewhere where you can demonstrate success. Um, you know, so something with a relatively low complexity might be a, a good recommendation for, uh, for your study. Um, whether it's interventional or observational. Um, look at studies that have the expectation of a long recruitment period, uh, learning lessons from one of our sites, uh, that the, you know, the drug trial, the in, uh, sponsored industry-sponsored drug trial, actually, unfortunately, prematurely closed. So that sort of brought that uh, evaluation to a halt. Uh, so look at studies that have the prospect of a long recruitment period and a high recruiting potential. So you can have multiple patient cases uh, uh, to evaluate and patient experiences to evaluate and satellite sites involved potentially. Look at sites that act and uh, institutions um, that leverage your existing relationships that you have now, whether it's a local regional node, uh, organizational uh, no, uh, sites within your organization, distributed care networks, uh, as Jaina um, alluded to in her introduction, all good examples and, and recommendations for where to get started. Um, because you're building on that existing, those existing processes that you have and relationships that you have. Um, another recommendation is when you're starting that initial determinant, determination of who will you'll work with as a, as a site or as a lead site, um, you're going to be sitting down and going through this master research agreement process. You don't have to identify to one of the questions in your chat all of your satellite sites up front. That's not, you know, that's not realistic, and uh, it's intended to be an agile model, if, um, especially that allows those sites to be added in as, especially in rare cancers, as patients are are identified, and site potential satellites are identified too. But when you're sitting down between with a satellite site, one of the key recommendations was bring all parties, not just the research personnel, not just the clinical personnel but the agreements and legal personnel into one kickoff meeting to, to orient them to this concept because it will expedite the process. It will um, ensure that any upfront questions or concerns are tackled so that you can kick that process off right and you can importantly get uh, those satellites um, involved in the trial as soon as possible. Uh, those are a couple of the ones that stand out in, you know, as high points from the from that uh, from that proof of concept. I've got one question, and then we're going to open the floor because we already have someone who's been brave enough to come on on stage. But my burning question is: resistance from the PIs to adopt this hub and spoke satellite model, and if so, how did you overcome that? Uh, we're not dealing with resistance yet. I don't, we do anticipate that, you know, like any new approach to doing things, there are going to be early adopters and those that are going to wait and see. Um, so we've been, we're in early stages. I think mean, we just launched the proof of concepts back in 2021 and, uh, 3CTN is part of our organization, at least the cancer center organization have, I would say, about a third of our sites 
with commitments to adopting the craft hybrid DCT approach um, or other DCT approaches, uh, full DCTs and, or other approaches in their work plans. So not everyone's on, uh, on board or ready uh, with this yet. It is something we recognize practically is going to take time, um, but uh, there's promise there. What we do know investigators have identified, and that's part of the reason for Jane for the toolkits to be developed, uh, was that the load li the load is being borne by those by the investigative site at the at uh, the central uh, primary site. Um, so the idea is to make sure that they have resources from the institution um, that the institution recognizes the work that they're doing that. They rec the investigators realize that this actually op and sponsors realize that this opens up the accrual potential for um, for that trial by taking a look at what the uh, acceptance rate or the uh, consent rate is for patients and the reasons for for patients that reject the study and and really taking that into consideration. But there's no getting away from the fact that there is an added coordination function for the PLS. But also, maybe it's fair to say that those folks who are part of your network are collaborators by nature, and this is a new way to enable even more collaboration. That's how I'm thinking about it. It doesn't mean that the friction isn't there. It's just like they're they're in it with this intent to collaborate. Yes, I think that's fair. Absolutely. Mo, I think you are ready to ask a question. And by the way, there are a ton of great questions in the chat. We'll try to get to several of those. Hi, I, Jane, you mentioned me, right, Monish? Yes. Okay, hi. Uh, thanks, Stephen. So appreciate, I think, uh, really interesting. And I was speed reading through the link and all the documents. There's a ton of stuff on the link that you provided to go through as well. And I think you did clarify this, that this it's not necessary for it's not required that the satellite sites would be coming on board at the same time as the, the principal site, so to speak. And there's an opportunity that if um, one of the potential satellite sites has a patient that you would bring them on, so, so to speak, uh, on demand just in time, right? That's correct. Yes. So, yeah. It's meant so, to be agile. Um, I mean, just in time will will depend on will depend on how quickly those agreements true. are in place. I think it's fair to say too that uh, once that master agreement has been uh, reached between institutions, that that does become uh, closer to a just in time. So I think that yeah, so there's, a, there's a ton of questions that come up. Not ton. There's quite a few questions that come up in in that area. So, you know, first one would be that uh, between a patient being identified and a satellite site being ready to, you know, consent that subject, what has been your experience in how long does, has it taken? And, and is it consistently feasible that to run? A lot of, lot of organizations have tried their protocol that have been written by some companies which have been, uh, you know, um, so to speak, in just-in-time approach, it's always challenges being to get the get everything in place, get the logistics, get the lab kits, get the drugs, get everything in place to to be able to consent in time. That is reasonable, and I was wondering what your experience has been in that. Yeah, all of those issues are are you know face the each one of the 
uh, initial, so we're still in our initial phases. We have, uh, I would say, still less than 10 uh, cases across our network, um, but we're we have commitments for several more trials to open up this year, um, but it is an observation. All of what you've mentioned, uh, Mo, is our observations, and and we've seen uh, our, that uh, initiation of a satellite site take months. Right now, we know that that will shrink, um, but that's the purpose of the proof of concept yeah. is to really demonstrate what or, or hear what the recommendations are from centers that. Uh, are the first really at the in line to take this on are reporting what what they do say and have um, have reported out is that this will not take nearly as long now that they've established the workflows for I, review particularly of the agreements I think that's absolutely critical to get that right because you know uh, one is in the potential to improve approval of patients I think it's it's just having have access. Um, it's it's it. This has the potential to have a big impact out there. The other yeah, and that and that distilled down into the recommendations, which we're really looking at trials that have long accrual periods. Look at trials that have a lot of patients, uh, so that there will be ability for new sites to be brought on board when there's a point in time of readiness. Start maybe with one satellite site first to refine your process, learn your lessons, and then expand. Uh, so again, all of those are recommendations. We are planning a publication too, I should just note, um, to follow the evaluation stage of the proof of concepts, uh, to hear from clinicians uh, and patients from their, about their, and trialists about their experience in implementing. So we'll be releasing that uh, in the coming year as well. So there'll be more detail on, on what those real experiences are. I think you know when when you look when you look at when you look at a model like this or when you hear about a model like this, you know the the, the bullet point questions that come up are things like the incentives or why would a satellite site be want want to be a part of uh, something like this? What are the incentives out there? Uh, there's just the logistics of um, the logistics of uh, contracting and budgeting in the sense of from a sponsor perspective how many sites one would be budgeting for. One would imagine that every additional site is an additional cost and an additional place to monitor, things like that. So these are kind of punch list of things that come up um, from a logistics perspective. And I was wondering if you, what your experience has been uh, in those areas. I would invite Bianca to comment specifically on uh, from her, her experience, but I will say generally within the craft model and approach is just to re maybe repeat and emphasize a point that the satellites themselves are not standalone trial sites. So in the eyes of the sponsor, um, there um, there's an expectation that remote monitoring um, would be sufficient in many cases, uh, that the trial file and the, the CRFs um, are are managed centrally uh, by the primary site, so it does simplify that 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 aspect of, of review and monitoring um, and and quality uh, control as well. Um, you have the ability now in the digital world that we've all uh, everyone has been recognized as taking a a crash course in, and, and there's been widespread evolution, including patient. Uh, capacity to participate in DCTs as well, and sites, uh, and, a and enabled systems and platforms that allow for a lot of this work to be done remotely. 
Um, so again, there's a lot of enabling solutions and acceptance by all parties that there are new processes or ways to do uh, to do these trials. But back to my original point, the satellite sites themselves are not standalone sites. They are satellites to the main site. So again, that's really central to the understanding of what of the craft approach anyway. And Manish, I think it might be relevant to Bianca, you get the next word, I promise. But it is important to call out the, the fundamental differences in the healthcare system in Canada, too, right? Like, it just operates differently than in the United States, but quite similarly to UK and Australia, for example. Absolutely. And when I said incentives, I wasn't thinking from more from the point of view of monetary, considering that, you know, health um, from a Canadian health uh, healthcare system, I was thinking like, what's the motivation, right? For, <laughs> that's that's like, access. I, These docs want their patients to have access, I think. Yeah, and I do want uh, uh, Bianca to, 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 uh, to jump in here, but I, I will say that uh, I know you asked that up front just to address that point. Satellite centers are enthusiastic, to say the least, about participating because it is an opportunity on behalf of their patients to offer that study. There is also a professional development um, intent there and interest there um, for clinicians in remote uh, centers or in community health centers to have access to research, op um, participating in research opportunities for themselves and to get some research experience. So that's been another identified uh, driver, but we have not heard back yet about a theme of, of resistance uh, on behalf of satellites. More questions about how to, logistical questions, questions that arise from the agreement, but those recommendations that I talked about earlier were, were cited as ways to try to expedite that process and address those questions up front. Yes, you're absolutely correct, Stephen. Um, what was surprising in a really good way is that when we wanted to implement satellite sites, everyone wanted to be part of it and we're trying to find ways to make it work and make it easier for everybody. So you're, you're absolutely right. There was like no resistance uh, from my experience. And if I can answer um, the part about the, the monitoring and and the the workload at the at the satellite site, like like Stephen mentioned, um, so it's the primary site that will keep doing all the data and will keep the source document, and they will go uh, under like they will have the monitoring done at their site. So it's not going to be done at the satellite site. So it's not really more work for the sponsor. Um, so I think um, maybe the, the next thing to do, and this is what we are trying to implement with a new clinical trial that we have in, in Canada now, is if maybe um, having integrated already in the protocol, you know, a section about decentralized clinical trials, I think maybe that would make it a lot easier when opening um, those sites they will already, you know, know that they can build um, satellite sites, and we can give them all the tools they need to implement that. Um, so, in in, I think it's really like the next step to make it easier for for everybody. That's fantastic, and those tools will be incredibly helpful. 
I'm going to pull a question out of the chat just because I've been curious about this too. And you share what technology was leveraged at maintenance satellite. And, and maybe I'll do a yes and on that from the chat. Technology and how you're handling uh, supplies um, for those uh, for those satellites. Uh, Bianca, do you want to use your example? I, there, we could talk pharmacy, we could talk supplies and technology maybe and how that, there are different approaches, but Bianca, do you want to start with your, your case? Uh, yes. Um, so from my experience, um, the treatment that was given was drugs that were commercially available. So it was a little different for us because um, the adult cancer center that was our satellite site, uh, we didn't have to send them um, any drug shipment. Uh, they will have they had access to those commercial available um, chemotherapy. Um, so it's a little different for me. I didn't have this experience of sending drugs to a satellite site. And is there any um, specific technology that's being used to help connect those sites? Do they? interact with the investigator by video or other ways to um, to help folks stay connected? Yeah, for sure. Uh, we definitely had a lot of virtual calls uh, during putting face this process and, and even after, during and after. Um, a lot of phone calls for sure, emails. Uh, but I would say that virtual, since the pandemic, I think it, there was really an increase of um, using those tools of virtual meeting. And this is really what we we did. Um. We've Yeah, we ha um, and in addition to Bianca's experience, just uh, in the uh, proof of concepts, there were a variety of, of platforms. Um, so the sponsored trial had EPRO. Uh, as part of its um, its platform, as I understood it, uh, so and and really the satellite patient uh, and tr uh, primary site patients uh, had this would have the same experience using that technology, and um, obviously a requirement to orient the patient would need to be uh, uniformly done, but that would become part of the trial-specific training for the satellite staff. Uh, for example, kits uh, distributed centrally, either centrally by the, by the uh, sponsor or um, sent by the primary site to the satellite site. Both are amenable under this model. It really depends on the circumstances that, you know, when the satellite site's added, how many patients and other factors, but that's all uh, adaptable, let me say. Now, one, one question I'd love to come back to, just to double-click a little further, is that theme in the uh, FDA draft guidance on decentralized, where they are calling out this opportunity for routine for, for healthcare providers to perform those routine care activities in the uh, in the trial. And it certainly is is leaving a lot of questions in people's minds about training and documentation around that which we believe much of which will be addressed in the final guidance that might be available later this year. But that was certainly the area of focus for a lot of the comments they've received. Um, as, as you're envisioning the, 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 this, the, the role of these community oncologists 
Is there a continuum in your mind where in some cases they will be these satellite sites that do require additional training and, and tools to support tasks that are not routine care? And on the other end, studies that the scope really is activity that they're already trained and qualified to do. And then will we wind up with a bit of a murky gray zone in between? Absolutely. I like your your way of describing it, Craig, as a continuum. Um, I, I, I hope, and with awareness of the FDA's draft guidance, that, that the final language really carries forward or continues the, the high-level approach of taking a risk-managed approach um, to making that determination about the level of training uh, and oversight that's required. Um, I think if we're looking at standard of care on one end, um, uh, it would be reasonable, in my opinion, um, to to uh, have a, a much light, uh, lower level of oversight and expectation around that, while still assuring data quality and compliance with the requirements and the and the parameters of the trial protocol. I mean, those are me those are control measures, as I see it. Yeah, I think these are going to be in, this will be an interesting uh, conversation to keep having and exploring. Um, I know there's a, a question in the chat also asking about um, what um, what enrollment data has looked like using the framework, but it sounds like it is still early days with uh, with the projects that there will be maybe some publishing coming out, but is there any early signal around enrollment impact that uh, you could comment on? Yeah, I would say, you know, the enrollment picture is is just really getting started. Um, uh, and I would we do have enrollment in uh, the two at satellite sites in both of our uh, academic trials that are still ongoing in the, in the uh, proof of concept. Bianca, I'm not sure what your enrollment you know, looks like in the trials that you're running. Yes, actually, for us, it made a really big difference. Um, we were able to get four adult patients on the pediatric clinical trial and two patients that were living from uh, really far from uh, from our site. So in total, for one study, we had like six more patients in, I think, in a year. So only in a year, we had six more. So it was amazing. I think what's really happened, uh, one exciting example of what's happening to address a barrier that we have here in Canada, given our health system is managed uh, and and overseen and delivered provincially, are is work that's happening in our pedi in our pediatric uh, network uh, with the C seventeen council part of overseeing the the fourteen uh, pediatric cancer centers in the country and the conduct of trials there uh, is implementing a. Have fully uh, implemented craft across that network, and all and across provincial boundaries, and looking at issues related to reimbursement, um, physician reimbursement, and payment um, that way. So that's a next step. That's something exciting to come. Uh, as well, we have within the adult space the Atlantic Clinical Trial Network, uh, looking at interprovincial enrollment in a region that has a very low population um, relative to most um, to other centers in Canada. So really leveraging this model as a trial feasibility, a means for uh, feasible means for doing uh, the, the trial and, and uh, enrolling patients from across uh, the region. 
I'm going to double click there because as somebody who ran trials in Canada, it was often hard to convince a sponsor that was not based in Canada that it was worth opening trial sites because of the very low population numbers. So I applaud you because I think what you're building is a way to create a CRECO approach, a clinical research as a care option in a country that desperately needs access to trials in healthcare. And that may be a, a great message to wrap up today's conversation. I'm so grateful to have had you, Stephen and Bianchi, here with us to share more about the experiences with this model. We're really looking forward to following this work, whether uh, updates you want to share here, as well as when the publications uh, are available based on these experiences. Thank you, Monish, for jumping in and sharing your perspective today and to the many, many folks contributing in the live chat. It's the Friday before the Super Bowl and Valentine's Day, and we'll see many of you at the Scope Summit in just a few days, and then we'll regroup together again next week. Have a fabulous uh, weekend, and thanks so much, everybody, for joining.